to the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation. Put away your indignation towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what, the, what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we come now to your word. And we would ask that you will take these few moments and that you would redeem them. You would redeem them uh, not just for the week that is upcoming, but Father, you would redeem them in the eternity that is ours to either gain or to lose. Father, this morning we are going to think about your hesed, your covenant faithfulness, your steadfast love. And Lord, we pray that as we uh, seek to be faithful to your word and as we seek to be obedient, as we saw this morning in Sunday school, as we seek to be those who trust and obey. Father, would you use this time in your word to strengthen our hands for the living of these days? For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible is rather full of significant words that are pregnant with meaning and weight. Words like creation, sin, redemption. J.I. Packer wrote an entire book on 18 such words. As he notes in the introduction, the words of the Bible reorient us. They change in a fundamental way how we view the world. Well, we have just such a word in our text for this morning. In verses 7 and 10, we find the phrase steadfast love. Now, I know you're saying, wait, pastor, that's not a word, that's two words. True, in Hebrew, it's one word. It's the word hesed. Now, as we've already noted, the ESV translates this as steadfast love. But the word could also be translated covenant faithfulness. What the writer of Scripture is conveying to us is that in the context of a covenant relationship, our God is faithful and he is steadfast. 
In the context of a covenant relationship, our God is faithful and our God is steadfast. Now, that truth is both amazing and awful. Our God is faithful and steadfast. That is an amazing thought. But we, his people, are often anything but. God is faithful. We are faithless. God is steadfast. We are prone to wonder. And so the psalmist this morning reminds us of a very powerful and very basic truth. And you see it listed in front of you and on the bulletin as, as our big idea for this morning. And it's this. God shows hesed to his people when they turn to him. God shows hesed to his people when they turn to him. Four points we want to make this morning. Uh, the first one is this. We want to read the text canonically and not geographically. We want to read the text canonically and not geographically. See, if we're not careful, we're likely to read Psalm 85, particularly verse 1, and then again verse 9, and then again verse 12, and get sideways. In fact, it's possible that as I was reading the text for this morning, you were going, wow, pastor, providentially, that's a great choice for July 4th weekend. It's talking about God's blessing upon the land. And we're celebrating America today. So isn't it great that we have a psalm that speaks of God's blessing of the land on July 4th weekend? But let's pause. And let's understand that land in this psalm is not the place where we live. This is not in reference to Israel or Judah. This is not in reference to the United States or Kenya or Scotland or any other place that we are partnering in gospel ministry. Now, land in Psalm 85 is the place where God's covenant people dwell. Not where they live, but where they dwell. Now, it's interesting because uh, we've noticed that we've been going through this particular series of psalms as we're in the sort of mid-80s. We've noted that these psalms are post-exilic. So the sons of Korah, whoever they are, are writing this after Israel has lost the promised land. Folks uh, from Israel have been taken to Assyria later on. Folks from Judah have been taken to Babylon and later Persia. So this is not about geographic Israel. This is not about the sort of socio-political reality of the nation of Israel. No, this is about where God's covenant people dwell. And as we get to the New Testament, we understand that the place where God's people dwell is God's church. Now, if we understand land at that point to be church, then we understand that the psalmist is proclaiming that God is favorable to his church. 
And that the church, God, Christ assures us, will indeed yield its increase. Now, as we think about this particular issue, uh, let's understand, brothers and sisters, this is probably a place in which we're really going to need to be gracious to one another. Uh, several years ago, in fact, 30 years ago now, uh, I sat out a semester in college. I was living with my, uh, with my maternal grandparents. I had a job in Omaha, and I would come up in the mornings, and I would have breakfast, and uh, breakfast at my maternal grandparents meant we were going to read a daily bread and my grandfather was going to pray in his heavily Norwegian accent uh, for longer than I thought appropriate as a 20-year-old who needed to get to work. And I remember on one of those mornings, the, uh, the particular devotion dealt with this question of land, and it talked about the nation of Israel, and it talked about uh, God's blessing upon America, and it got wrapped up in that way. And I... I because I was 20 and has, was two years into college as a Bible major, uh, dealt with it in a not very tactful way, uh, basically saying, well, you know what Daily Bread is saying is wrong, right? Like, you know this, don't you? That did not go over particularly well. I do remember, though, my grandparents pointing out to me, and one of the things that stuck with me, and this is why I say I think we need to be gracious to one another, is they lived through a time in which uh, being an American meant that you were standing up against fascism and totalitarianism. It really was good versus evil. And America was a place that was determined to stand up for that which is good. And then after World War II, you had the Cold War. And you had the communists who didn't even believe in God. And so again, in their mind, America, the geopolitical reality that is America, was a place that stood for that which is good. And so, of course, they're going to read this and go, yes, God, would you indeed be favorable to our land? Would you give increase to our land? But let's remember something. The family of God, the people of God, are bigger than any one national identity. I mean, think this morning. Think about our friends at Gigi Fan in Kenya. If they were preaching, through, if Pastor Simon was preaching through Psalm 85, and he were to say, well, this is clearly about Kenya. And we'd be going, hey, wait a minute, uh, Pastor Simon, what about us? Or if Mez McConnell and the boyos at 20 Schemes in Scotland were saying the same thing, now all of a sudden we and Pastor Simon are going, hey, what about us? But if we understand that this is speaking about the church, that the church is the place where God's people dwell if we have in our mind that beautiful vision of Revelation chapter 7, that scene of worship in the throne room of God, in which we're told, in fact, keep your finger in Psalm 85 and turn over, turn to the end of the book. Go to Revelation chapter 7, which can be found on page 1240 in your pew Bible. Revelation chapter 7. 
beginning in verse 9. Now, the scene is the throne room of God, and here is what John sees and what he records. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Did you note the description of the people of God that's there in verse 9? It's a great multitude. In other words, God has blessed its increase. It's a great multitude that no one can number, and it is from every nation, from all tribes and peoples, and languages, friends, the psalmist is not talking about a particular geographical location when he asks for God to bless the land. He's talking about the place where God's people dwell. And the place where God's people dwell is within his church. Secondly, then, we're called to remember We're called to remember. Look at verses 1 to 3. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all their wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Last weekend, I was asked to do the memorial service for an old classmate of mine. Uh, Two of his, uh, actually both of his parents had died within about two months of one another. Uh, They'd been married for 63 years. They had gone for health reasons to live uh, with a sibling who was in Georgia. Uh, They died, and finally, everyone could get back, and so we did the memorial service uh, last Saturday. After the memorial service, uh, we did what we always do at funerals. We ate. And so uh, sitting together at Christensen Field, I sat down with two old friends of mine from high school, And as is often the case with old middle-aged athletes who have had joints replaced, we remembered. And we remembered when we were young. And we were skinny. And we had hair. And we were fast. And doggone it, we were good. In fact, we were really good. And in the back of my mind, the boss was singing glory days. That's not the kind of remembering that the psalmist is calling us to. The psalmist is not saying... We need to remember past glories. No, the psalmist is saying this. Friends, we need to remember God's past mercies. We need to remember not how amazing we are when we were young and skinny and had hair. No, we need to remember how merciful and gracious and loving and kind and forgiving our God is. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered their sin. You withdrew your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. And it's interesting. Commentators 
as they're, they're writing about this text, they're going, okay, well, which possible incident in the life of Israel is the psalmist have in mind? And it's like, well, just pick. Like, there's literally a book full of them. Read the book of Judges. God's people have inherited the place that he's given to them. And right away, the writer of the book of Judges tells us that after Joshua dies, the people forget. And so what happens? Well, God delivers them over to their enemies, and then God's people, and it's, it's striking, isn't it? God's people remember. And they cry out to the Lord, and what's the Lord do? He raises up judges, and he delivers them, and then the land has peace, and it's great, and it's wonderful. And then again, God's people forget. And because they forget, they turn away from him. And then they remember, and they cry out. The entire, one of the, you could argue, the entire theme of the Old Testament is Psalm 85, verses 1 to 3. God, we forgot. But then we remembered. And when we remembered, we cried out to you, and you delivered us. You restored the fortunes of your people. It would be wonderful, wouldn't it, if we could say, well, you know, uh, that was those Old Testament people. and <laughs> You know, uh, well, God love them. But we're prone to forget as well. We, too, need to remember not all the ways in which we are awesome, not all the ways in which we're good enough or smart enough and doggone it people like us, and not all the ways in which God is really lucky to have us on his team. We, too, need to remember God's mercies. We need to remember that we have been forgiven. That God in Christ has covered all of our sin. That God has withdrawn all of his wrath. That he has turned from his hot anger. In short, we need to remember what we read in our New Testament reading. That Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sin. That not only does God forgive us, but the rightful and just wrath of God is taken away by the perfect and complete offering and sacrifice of His Son. And so this morning, at the end of our time together, we're going to make use of the primary tool that God has given us for remembering. We're going to come to the table. And we're going to think together about the body of the Lord Jesus that was broken. And the blood of Christ that was shed, not for his own sin, but for us. And we're going to be reminded that this table is but a foretaste of a table that is yet to come. In other words, we're going to remind ourselves of God's hesed. We're going to remind ourselves of his covenant faithfulness. And we're going to remind ourselves that all the things that the table pictures are the means by which God forgave our iniquity and covered our sin and withdrew his wrath and turned from his hot anger. We are going to remember not our glories, 
but God's mercies. Well, that remembering then brings us to the third thing, our third point. When we remember that, we're driven to pray. This isn't nostalgia for nostalgia's sake. This isn't nostalgia that then gets into, well, you know, back in the day it was just way better than it is now. No, this is nostalgia uh, in a sense that drives us to pray. And there's a play on words that's going on that it, it, it gets missed a bit in the ESV. In the end of verse 3, we're told that God turned from his hot anger. Well, verse 4, that phrase, restore us again, could also be, turn, could also be translated, um, turn us again. So God, you've turned from your anger. Would you turn us again towards you? So we are, here's the picture, we're turned, we're facing our sin. God then is turned, rightfully so, in anger and indignation towards us. And the psalmist is saying, God, would you do this? Would you turn us away from our sin and will you turn away from your anger? So there's a, there's a double turning that needs to happen. God Would God turn from and would he turn us? And so what he's praying for then is not a return to the glory days, but what he's praying for is for the kind of restoration that only God can bring. Look at verse 4. Restore us again, O God of our salvation. That's what he's concerned about. He's concerned about the salvation of God's covenant people. How's that going to start? Well, God has to put away his indignation towards us. And now he starts asking the questions that are natural for all of us when we're feeling the consequences of our own sin and stupidity. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again? that your people may rejoice in you. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Twice, the psalmist says, Lord, we need your salvation. It's not that we need the restoration of Israel. It's not that we need the restoration of the Davidic kingship, though that's going to happen. He's not asking for Israel to be reinstated. He's asking for God to bring his salvation to his people. Did you note that? Verse 4 and verse 7, the top and the tail of this particular section, deals with salvation. This is not about the right party being in office. This is not about particular legislation being passed or particular kinds of judges being in place. It's not about something as significant as banning the designated hitter from all baseball evermore. No. His concern is for God's salvation. The psalmist is asking God for the work of God's Messiah. That's his prayer. God, we're remembering your past mercies, and we need you to do it again. We need you to save us. We need 
the work that only your Messiah is going to be able to do. And friends, that brings us now to the moment of truth. The psalmist has remembered. The psalmist has prayed. And so now the question is this, how's God going to respond? Yes, God has acted this way in the past. Yes, here is the psalmist crying out, asking God to save them. But what if God says, no, I don't think so. What if God says, you know what? I forgave you the first 999 times you called on me, but I'm I'm just not going to do it anymore. Well, note in verse 8, I want you to note how the the adjectives, excuse me, the, um, the pronouns change. The psalmist says in verse 8, let me hear what God the Lord will speak. In other words, there's a preacher. The preacher is God himself. And what is the word that God is going to give in response to the prayer of his people asking God for his salvation? Let's read it. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. He will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. For surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good. Our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Friends, this is what God wants us to hear. As we remember and as we pray, God wants us to hear this particular word. And it's this. If you turn... God will forgive. If you turn, God will forgive. I love that phrase. It's beautiful, isn't it? Verse 10, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. It echoes the text that we read in our New Testament reading. In in Romans chapter 3, when we saw Paul speak that God is both just and the justifier of those who believe in the Lord Jesus. God has promised in his hesed to forgive. And yet God is also faithful to punish sin. So how is it that God's righteousness and the shalom, the peace of God, how is it that those things can kiss each other? Well, Paul tells us it's through the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way that God can say, if you will turn, I will forgive, is through the atoning work of Christ on the cross. God can be just in that he can pour out his wrath and does pour out his wrath for our sin on the Lord Jesus. 
And yet God is also justifier. We are declared not guilty, not because of anything that we have done, but because of what he has done on our behalf through his son, the Lord Jesus. I love how he puts it in verse 12. The Lord will give what is good. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Friends, let's understand that uh, what Christ has accomplished for us transcends this just mere uh, notion of, well, I'm saved, I'm not going to hell, so I'm okay. No, the church is going to yield its increase. Our God is giving us what is good. And he will make a way, verse 13, for this to happen. See, God providing a way in which his steadfast love and faithfulness come together and in which righteousness and peace kiss each other, it has an impact that goes beyond merely the salvation of an individual. Now that doesn't mean it does not impact you as an individual who is in desperate need of salvation. But let's understand that there's more going on here than just you've been declared not guilty. God is the creator. And he has an entire creation to redeem. God is a God of hesed. He's a God of covenant faithfulness and since he created all that is he has a covenant with everything that he has made yes this speaks to us individually but it also reminds us that as paul says all of creation groans waiting for the redemption that is yet to come friends this morning we're going to come to the table and we're going to remember. And as we remember, we want to hear not what we think the table means, but we want to hear what it is that God has done in Christ that he's reminding us of in the table. We're going to hear them again when we, as, as we get ready to take, partake of the table together. But let's understand that this is about a new covenant. And it's about the broken body of the Lord Jesus. It's about the shed blood of the Lord Jesus. And it's about a future, not a future that is dystopian, not a future that is unknown. But it's about a future in which the most stunning event ever in the history of the cosmos is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so this table does not just speak to us of the past. It doesn't just currently remind us of something that we need to remember. But the table also proclaims to us a great and glorious future in which God, through his son Christ, has reconciled all things to himself. Let's pray. Father, Thank you that as we turn, we don't have to wonder what your response will be. You have obligated yourself to us through your covenant.
And for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we turn, you forgive. For the glory of your great name, when we turn, you forgive. And Father, we thank you for the work of your Spirit, for it is the Spirit, Jesus tells us, who convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness. And so, Lord, we pray this coming week that we would be mindful of our need to pray, that we would indeed turn from our sin and we would turn to you. And, Father, would we do so knowing that your steadfast love means you will forgive those who turn. You will bestow your hesed on those who turn from their sin and turn to you. We pray all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.